Welcome to the God and Cancel Culture podcast. I'm Stephen Strang, and that's the title of my new book, which releases September 7th. I wanted to call attention to the book by adding this separate podcast. This interview with Rob McCoy is in the book, but I also ran it as a Strang Report podcast, and it got a very good response. But I think that this new podcast will attract a new group of listeners, and that's why we put it as a separate podcast, but telling people that you may have already heard it on the Strang Report. I'm trying to draw attention not only to my book, but the very serious things that are going on in our country. I talk really about how bad it is. I mean, I was kind of shocked myself on some of the things that my research found, but there's also hope. There's always hope when we believe in God, and there are Leaders that believe that all of these bad things are going to somehow turn out good. And isn't that what the scripture says, that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord? I have a lot of respect for Rob McCoy. He's strong. He's bold. And we need to take uh, him as an example. We need to be strong, too. In fact, the subtitle for the book is Stand Strong Before It's Too Late. So enjoy the Strang Report podcast in full with Rob McCoy from Thousand Oaks, California. Welcome to the Strang Report with Steve Strang on the Charisma Podcast Network. This episode was produced to discuss and address issues within our nation and around the world from a Christian worldview. Pastor McCoy, you stepped off the Thousand Oak City Council when COVID-19 hit. Why did you do that? Well, Stephen, I, I, I stepped off uh, from the council on April 3rd, and, and the reason why I did that is because uh, when the governor declared that the church was non-essential during uh, the COVID pandemic, we didn't know the severity of the virus. He said that uh, abortion clinics were essential, cannabis distributors were essential, liquor stores were essential, but the church wasn't. And he declared that right during our Holy Week. And so we were getting ready to celebrate, as we always do, the Sacrament of Communion, the first Sunday of of the month, which was April 4th. And uh, so April 3rd, we had made that decision to do it. We were still following CDC standards. And when I realized that it had hit the press and it was all the way over in, in England, um, I, I called the city manager and the other council members because I knew they'd, they'd have to censure me, and they weren't um, as committed to their oath of office, I believe, in that we swore to defend the Constitution, and the governor had no right to declare the church non-essential, especially in a time of a pandemic. We're critical. So I resigned from the city council on April 3rd, and then April 4th, we did communion. And what happened when you did? Well, our sanctuary holds about 400 seats, and we had we had 10 seats, and it took us three, almost three and a half hours to do communion. The press descended on us like we were super spreaders preparing to kill the entire community. But to the press's credit, they reported it that it was the cleanest place in all of Ventura County. And and we wanted to put that forward, that we're essential. We'll, we'll play by the rules, but we're still essential, and the governor has no right to silence the church. None at all. And... Um, so we had some protesters, but we didn't have any outbreak. Well, that's good. And, of course, a lot of us were watching what was going on out there. You were, you were one of the very first to stand up to the authorities. Down here in Florida, Rodney Howard Brown 
probably a couple of weeks before that was actually arrested. And Matt Staver of Liberty Council told me he, as far as he knows, Rodney was the first pastor in American history to be arrested for the offense of holding a church service. To the credit of our officials down here in Florida, they backpedaled as fast as they could. But it was a a real item in the news for several days, and as was yours. So in what ways did the governing authorities and maybe even your own spiritual brethren come after you when you decided to exercise your constitutional freedoms against, uh, you know, what other people said you shouldn't do? Well, when word got out uh, prior to us holding communion, the fact that we were considering doing it, a number of pastors called and said, you're going to be a detriment to the gospel and you're going to ruin our reputation in the community. And, and, and please don't do what you're going to do. So, so the body of Christ was divided. And I told them, I said, you guys don't understand. From a pastoral perspective, you think that peace is the absence of conflict. But not only am I a pastor, I also hold office, and I know exactly what these elected officials are attempting to do. So I'm going to move forward with the knowledge I have. And you can join me or protest against me, but I've chosen uh, clearly, and I've, I've weighed the choices, and, and we've, we've spoken with the, the medical officials, and I even informed the sheriff. So uh, they left us alone after that until around August, late August, when three of the five county supervisors realized they were losing some political clout. Uh, because our church exploded overnight in attendance and the community started to respond to our leadership. Uh, so three of the five supervisors um, used county money, voted three to two, got county money, hired an attorney, and then called for uh, a temporary emergency restraining order um, on our church, on me and up to a thousand congregants, whether congregants or visitors, that we would receive a citation. And then they asked the judge, to have the sheriffs enforce it to lock the church and possibly arrest us, arrest us if necessary. And the uh, political and predictive judge approved it, agreed to it, and they, they put a restraining order on us, emergency. And mind you, we've been open wide since after the riots on May 31st when uh, the L.A. riots occurred and the governor praised BLM Inc. And 75% of the businesses that were burned and looted were Jewish owned and targeted and and the looters did it without masks or social distancing and the governor praised them. And we knew this wasn't about science or medicine. It was, uh, it was about power and politics. So uh, the, the uh, supervisors tried to exert their force on us. And so we, we violated that restraining order. Um, and when, when I showed up at church that Sunday, knowing that, you know, we could probably lose a church. I, I could, lose my house. Uh, we're going to get threats. Antifa was out. All, all kinds of crazy things were taking place. And I'm violating the law, and there's a likelihood I'm going to be in jail. But when I showed up at church that morning, Stephen, it was the most amazing thing. Uh, churches from all over California and, and the Northwest and, and Western states drove um, to our church and surrounded our church and when I walked in, they said, we're here because there, we're, there's, a, there's a thousand of us, and we're all in agreement that we're going to get the citations so that you and your congregants can worship in peace. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah. And 
of course, uh, Che On down in Pasadena was facing the same sort of thing around the same time, I guess. And, you know, they finally won in court, but not until they racked up, you know, millions of dollars of fines that I guess, you know, they, they never had to pay. Were you involved in that lawsuit or how did that lawsuit affect you and your situation? Well, in our situation, uh, we were the first to go to court and uh, the, the judge reduced the fine from a thousand dollars per incident, five hundred dollars per incident. And he refused to let the supervisors uh, enforce that the sheriff come and arrest us. So we we were accruing fines every Sunday. And as a matter of fact, when I had to go before the judge um, for my contempt hearing, uh, the witnesses they brought forward, county health officials, they perjured themselves. They they said that they had inspected and and they and and noticed uh, noted all of the violations of our congregation, that there was no social distancing, no masks being worn, and they were violation of the county ordinance, that they weren't relatives. When they finished, our attorney cross-examined them and held out pictures and said, "Is this you in the car?" And they said, "Yes." And and this is the other health official. Yes, neither of you are wearing masks. No, neither of you are socially distanced. No. And they had already asked them, do you follow these standards as a health official? Yes. Have you ever broken them? No. And and we showed them pictures. And, and the judge didn't dismiss their testimony, even though they perjured themselves. And the judge was going to retire. And instead of just canceling the order, he just wanted to have a, a drink with an umbrella on it somewhere on some beach. And he didn't want to make national news. He reduced the fine, let it just... And he didn't put a due date on it. So the the county was losing steam, and we were staying our course. And then uh, three days ago, the county, after running up hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines on us and realizing we weren't going to budge, and I told them, I'll see the inside of a jail cell before you're going to see a dime in that money. So three days ago, the county uh, dropped their suit. So we won. Praise God we for that. And, you know, the amazing yeah. thing to me is that our freedom of worship is enshrined in our First Amendment of the Constitution, and I never thought I would live to the day to see uh, churches being attacked by government officials. I mean, it's like Matt Staver said, the First Amendment does not go away during a pandemic. So how did the courts deal with that particular constitutional question, or did they just leave it alone? Well, now when you say you didn't think in your lifetime you'd see this, I think I, I think that is the blind spot for the body of Christ in America. Fifty years ago, we abdicated the public square. We, we don't participate in politics anymore. Our voter turnout is, is terrible and pathetic, and pastors no longer engage in political discourse and conversation. They justify it by saying, I just preach the gospel. And I hear that all over the country when I travel. I'm not political. I just preach the gospel. It's some, somehow insinuating that I don't preach the gospel because I'm political. But they've avoided, they've avoided conflict, and they think that peace is the absence of conflict, and it's not. Peace is the presence of Christ in the midst of the conflict. And what they don't realize is... When Jesus said to the disciples up in Caesarea Philippi, at the headwaters of the Jordan, where the Romans and the Greeks had had temples to their gods and goddesses, he turned to them and he said, who do men say that I am? 
And some of the disciples said, you're John the Baptist, Jeremiah. And he said, yes, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Then he said this, he said, upon this rock, I will build my, and everyone says church, but it's not church. That word didn't come to 400 years later. And that, that was put there for the sole purpose of establishing a church as an oligarchy. Jesus didn't say church. He, did, he, he didn't use a religious term. He didn't say synagogue or temple. He used a secular term that had been used hundreds of years before Jesus co-opted it. And the term he used was ecclesia, which means public square. Tyndale, he, he translated it correctly from the Greek into the English, and he was hung and then burned. And, and Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build the public square, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Greeks used to meet in the ecclesia, which was their town council. And above the door of every ecclesia were two words, isonomia and eleutheria, which meant liberty and equality. And, and we're supposed to be in the public square. That, that's exactly where the, the church is supposed to be, because from moral law comes civil law. And and we've truncated the gospel and made it myopic. We we think that raising your hand, which you don't see in the New Testament, is somehow justification for the existence of the church while your buildings get bigger and your budgets and your baptisms. But Jesus didn't say make converts. He said make disciples. He, just, he didn't just say make disciples. He said make disciples of all nations. Nations have boundaries and they have borders and they have constitutions. And you're contending for ideology against those who would enslave and those who would set free. And the in a constitutional republic where we live, it, it it wasn't designed by the Greeks. It was designed by the Hebrews. Jethro told Moses, appoint godly men who are not covetous, who love the law, and appoint them over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, federal, state, county, local. And then later he was given a constitution when he went up on Mount Sinai. And he was given the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And when he came down, the entire nation was in debauchery, immorality. And Moses was instructed by the law, to, the Lord, to teach the law to the children and then to place it in the center of the community. And Stephen, this is the coolest thing. When, when three to five million Jews cried out to God because they were enslaved, God sent a deliverer in Moses. Moses confronts Pharaoh and, and says what God told him to, let my people go. Pharaoh, as all tyrants do, says, who is God that I sh should obey him? And then he doubles the brick output and reduces the materials on the Hebrew slaves to exert his authority. And all of them complain not to Pharaoh. They complain to Moses. And, and the, the, the takeaway is everybody wants freedom and liberty. They just don't want to suffer or work for it. But Moses continues to lead, even though the people want to stone him. The ten plagues, miraculous, the parting of the Red Sea, drowning of Pharaoh's army, manna every morning, water where there isn't, quail blown up course, clothes don't wear out, shoes don't wear out. But the greatest miracle of all that I just listed is that when Moses came down with the Decalogue and did as God instructed and gave the nation moral law, three to five million people lived together for 40 years without a police force or a standing army. And, and the church has abdicated 
stepping into the public square, as it says in Galatians 3, that the law is a school teacher, guardian, to point us to Christ until faith comes. We don't teach on immigration anymore. We, 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 we're, we're suckered into this Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, social justice with capital S, capital J, which is not social justice. It's Marxism. They don't believe in absolute truth, and pastors aren't prepared to contend with it. And and these minority victim groups, whether it's the LGBT or we can go on and on, they find their strength in intersectionality where truth is no longer empirical data in the Enlightenment thinkers and the scientific method. That's a white man's idea. So all white men and women are racist, and, and they're systemically racist. And I had no choice over my melanin content, but I have been labeled intrinsically and systemically racist because of my ideas. And so they've removed absolute truth in the critical race theory, and they're teaching it to our children because Christians don't participate in school boards anymore. We don't participate in city council. And what this critical race theory has done is truth now comes from the intersectionality of victim groups who exert their political authority, and then they decide what truth is, and they decide the lexicon, and they change the meaning of the words. So it has completely obliterated everything that Christ stood for, where he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In the beginning was the word. Words don't matter anymore. Semantics is gone with critical race theory, and nobody's aware of this because they don't do their homework. And the church is being decimated and played like a, a useful idiot because they say we don't do politics. And that's exactly what the church should be doing. Aristotle said politics is the highest form of community. It combines morality and sociability. Everyone does politics. Everyone does. And it's about time the church wakes up to its responsibility to impart moral knowledge. And from that will come civic laws that will point people to Christ. But in their apathy and their antipathy and their eschatology that justifies their inactivity, that, that the rapture is coming, why bother? I've got news for you. That, that grieves the heart of the Lord. And we, we, we've got to wake up. There needs to be an awakening. Well, I agree with you 100%. And you said some very good things that I didn't want to interrupt. But I would like to circle back around and defend yeah. my comment. I've been beating the drum for these kinds of things my entire career. I got very, very involved in Mike Huckabee's and Donald Trump's campaigns. I'm talking about personally. Right. But I recognize what you're saying about the church. I would even believe that we've been losing our rights more than 50 years, even maybe back to the Woodrow Wilson era. You know, you can kind of trace it uh, with the Scopes monkey trial in the 20s. A lot of uh, Christians b uh, being blamed for prohibition, which was very unpopular, as you know, those kinds of issues. But what I meant about the First Amendment, I thought it was so strong in, in American culture that nobody would dare to attack it. And, you know, this health emergency, COVID-19, as they call it, I like to call it the China virus, you know, suddenly gave them an opportunity because everybody kind of went along with it. Like you said earlier, none of us knew how bad it was. We didn't know if it was going to be like the bubonic plague in Europe that wiped out a third of the population. And of course, it hasn't even come anywhere close to that. That's a whole different issue. 
I have a lot of respect for you, even though I've never met you. We've actually reported online and in print uh, some of the things that you've done. David Lane, who's a very good friend of mine, is like your number one fan. And But I want to talk about the cancel culture, because this is what my book is about. And you kind of referred to this a minute ago, that your church has kind of exploded since all this happened. You know, the county and the state tried to shut you down, but instead you seem to have grown a lot while other churches are shrinking. Could you speak to that? Sure. And, and, and thank you for the kind compliments. And I actually do know of you, and I am a fan of yours, and I am also a tremendous fan of David Lane. I, I, I can honestly say I am where I am because David Lane did what he did. Um, I, I, I got access to folks who would become later mentors for me, and that was as a result of what David Lane did. So thank you for mentioning him. He's a great blessing for my life. Um, cancel culture, our church exploding. Yeah, our, our church went from uh, 150 people on a, on a good Sunday to over 2,000. It, it's exploded. We, we've gone to four services. We used to have two. Uh, every room in our church is full. We have to turn people away with fire codes. We're looking for a satellite campus. People are calling from across the country asking if there are any churches like ours in their state. Um, Charlie Kirk and I are putting together um, a list uh, when when callers call in or email us if they have a church in their community or their state that's like ours, then we refer them when people call us. And, and we get thousands of calls in regards to that. People want leadership. And I'm so glad that you're touching on the cancel culture because the critical race theory with the intersectionality the, the whole purpose is it's it's not a it based on your victim status is where you rise in points in this new cancel culture because they believe that the enlightenment and scientific method modernism is a white man's constraint to keep the minorities down and so they've canceled anyone who would speak or try to be logical or would put forward uh, an enlightenment idea or anything Christian. And so they attribute Christianity, the enlightenment, scientific theory, empirical data, they attribute that all to the white man. So the lowest in this structure of intersectionality, the lowest uh, in, in regards to victimhood is going to be a white male heterosexual Christian. The highest in this new society of cancel culture, the more victim you are, the more valuable you are, and the greater your political force is to exert, it would be uh, a black, transgender, female, uh, lesbian, uh, atheist. And the bottom line is, Stephen, the cancel culture boils down to this. They don't care about the color of my skin or the lack of melanin. They don't care that I'm male and they don't care that I'm heterosexual. They care that I'm Christian. And and all of the other traits I listed in their victimhood, it boils down to one thing, atheism. This is between God saying and man saying. And they want to take their sin that's enslaved them and they, they want to make it a victim identity and they want to call evil good and they want to call good evil. 
And this is a battle for the hearts and the souls and the minds of men. And their weapon is the political arena. And they're also attacking words, the meaning of words. And they no longer hold to absolute truth. And they cancel anyone who does because you must first censor before you can bring out propaganda. Because the lie is never tolerant of the truth, and a lie will never survive in the presence of the truth. The truth doesn't care about lies. The truth will always, always rise. So they must censor, and they must put forward the cancel culture and then the propaganda. And we've had our YouTube channel shut down. Um, we've been attacked. We've been censored. All of it. And they must also get rid of Christianity to have atheism. And really, I'm making the point in the book with some of my other interviews, is communism. They use the word socialism. They use different words. But it's really communism. Karl Marx said it was the opiate of the people, you know, and the countries that were communist, you know, Russia being the best known, and of course China, trying to get rid of all Christianity. That's really the goal of all this. And they've got to cancel the existing to have their new version of uh, utopia. Interesting. Um, when you look at the postmodern theorists and the philosophers, that had looked at, you know, the Enlightenment, John Locke, scientific method, and the universities moving forward to study truth and to apply it to engineering. And all of a sudden, the elevators invented the air conditioner, the skyscraper, the airplane, and Western civilization begins to explode. But then these philosophers in Europe witness World War One and World War Two and the death toll. And they see the machinery of the modern era creating a Hitler. And so these philosophers get together and say, how do we avoid this? And so they came up with postmodern, which means there's no more rules and boundaries. Just make it up. And that's where you get some weird artists like Pollock and others that just looks like a child threw up on a canvas. And, and they call it modern art. And, and they, they said there's no boundaries. Well, it did okay for a while in art and entertainment, but it never really took root in society until um, this, this rise of the LGBTQ and this racism and Antifa. And they are so disillusioned, not only with modernism, they're also disillusioned, interestingly enough, with communism. They don't want universality. They, they don't want a one, one world government. They want absolute and complete chaos. Now, there may be those like Soros who would possibly want a one world government and maybe some of the folks up in the tech world. But those who teach this philosophy of critical theory, they want complete and utter destruction, chaos. It is demonic. It, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants the church destroyed. He wants all morality removed. Now, that may prove itself to communism. I don't know. It may be socialism. But I do know whatever the form is, it's going to be an oligarchy, but it also may be chaos, just absolute anarchy if they get their way because they're defunding the police. They want to create as much riot as possible. And they do it all under the guise of social justice. Boy, what you're saying is so true, and we could probably spend hours diving into that. But I want to get back to the cancel culture and ask you, for my listeners and, and later my readers, how can 
Christian people resist cancellation at the local level, and really it's not just Christians, it's any conservatives. In many cities and towns now, the leftists are going after anyone who raises a voice against their agenda that you've been talking about. Real simple. There's, there's way more of us than there are of them, but they own the realms of distribution for information. So the first thing I do is the, the, the strongest form of politics is local. Own your community. We went and, and we couldn't get the newspaper to print truth, truth. And they were owned by the cancel culture. And so was the editor. So we started our own newspaper. And we stand up. <clears throat> and the amazing thing is that when you contend with the cancel culture and you give them what they gave you, you mean them. You mean what they're doing, and, and then they cry, and you mean them while they're crying. And that may sound cruel for a pastor, but the reality of it is you must tell the bully to sit down. And they may not like the fact that they have been confronted with their sin and that they have to look it in the eye, and they're going to be treated that way. Now sit down, and they do. You push back. There's more of us than there are of them, and their behavior is unacceptable. And they must be corrected. It's not acceptable in society. And you don't turn a blind eye and you don't walk by quietly while they're ruining everyone's life. The difference between morality and character, morality is not doing what's wrong, but character is doing what's right. So if your child comes home from school and says, Mommy, Daddy, all the kids in the school called Susie fat, but I didn't. You'd say, well, that's the moral thing to do, but where's your character? And your child would say, what do you mean? Why did you tell the children to stop it? Now all that's necessary for evil to prosper is for good men and women to do nothing, Edmund Burke. But it's time we have character and push back. You know, you've been a, a leader even in running for city council in Thousand Oaks, California. Uh, later, you were mayor pro tem and then later mayor. So you obviously yeah. believe in these institutions. Do you believe that it's possible, is it possible to restore America through present institutions such as city councils and federal elections? And if so, why do you believe that? Well, God created government in the way I covenant. And it's interesting, um, the pastoral epistle, Timothy, when he says, pray for kings and those in authority that we would live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and reverence. That's a pastoral epistle. And I ask pastors across the country, do you, do you believe the, the Bible to be the Word of God? Yes. And you love that passage. Yes. Pray for kings and those in authority. I say, well, based on that pastoral epistle, could you name for me your five city council members and your five school board members that you pray for by name and the issues that they're dealing with in your community that would allow the citizens of your community to live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and reverence? You can hear a pin drop. They don't know their council members. They don't know their school board members. We want our salvation to come on Air Force One. We want it easy. We want someone to do it for us. But to sit on a city council, <clears throat> you sit through five-hour meetings on the circumference of oak trees. It, it's, it, it's hard work, and it's boring, and you don't get paid for it. And if you do, you get paid very little. But I'll tell you what. The California Teachers Association spends millions, if not billions, of dollars. It's the largest funder of political campaigns in California to dominate the local school boards. 
the ones that Christians don't want to attend or participate in. And while we've been busy doing church, the secular progressive left has dominated the ecclesia. We've been impressed with our buildings and our budgets and our baptisms and homeless ministries, but we haven't participated in government. And yet, it is possible to change the country. One man and God constitutes a majority. I can show you everywhere in Scripture where it changes overnight. When the two lepers go outside the city gates, when they said they're, you know, they were selling dove droppings in a, in a donkey's head for food, and they said even if the heavens opened up, there would be no, no such an abundance of grain, and the next day God provided it. When Jesus said, peace be still, he, did not, he didn't just calm the wind. He calmed the waves. The, the waves were the ancillary effect of the wind, and that usually takes time to settle. He calmed them both at the same time. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, and their wicked ways are apathy, their wicked ways are a blind eye to the decimation of a million babies a year. If they would turn from their wicked ways of the fear of man being a snare and more concerned with their social popularity on social media and posting a black tile instead of watching 37% of all abortions in America on black children, which is a holocaust. If my people would turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. Yeah, God can change it. And yes, politics is a wonderful way because that's the public square. That's the ecclesia. That's where it's supposed to be. You know, you're saying some wonderful things, and I've let this podcast go on a little longer than normal. But I want to, there's sorry. one more, no, don't say you're sorry, it's been good. I'm sorry that I've kept you so long, but, you know, you mentioned earlier Charlie Kirk, and you're close with him, yeah. and you, you know, other than Charlie, what are you seeing with the younger generation that, who are fi- uh, standing up to fight this tyranny? I, w- I was just with them this weekend, hundreds of young people who are contending in the ecclesia in the public square, standing for truth, and they're, they're being beat up, and nowhere on campus do they find any of these Christian organizations. They're just contending for, for principles that would bring individual freedom, and one in particular is a young girl named Avery. She's in Minnesota high school. I think it's called Bear Mountain High School, if, I, if I'm correct. She wants to start a Turning Point USA club. She needs 20 classmates. She's at the point where she has 18. And all of a sudden, her friends are calling her and saying, why did you post all these racist things? And the administration comes down on her. They suspend her. They call for a hearing. The school does a walkout. She's getting death threats, and she needs an armed guard to take her to school. And it's plastered on the papers the administration uh, attacks her, only to find out after an FBI investigation, she never posted a single thing. It was done by a BLM Inc. youth activist who got to get away anonymously, and no one ever brought charges, even though that person ruined Avery's life. And Avery is fearless. She's still moving forward. And courage isn't the absence of fear. Everybody's afraid. But courage comes when we're willing to lose everything for the sake of the thing that matters most. And I have news for all the churches in America. You, you think 
you think Satan is going to let you continue to meet? You think he's going to be content letting you have your little corner? The, the, the bottom line is, when my wife and I and my family decided to violate that, we knew we'd lose everything. And we realized nothing's more important to us than liberty. And the minute I surrendered it, the fear went away because it can't take anything from me anymore. I already surrendered it. I gave it away. I'm no longer afraid. I'm not afraid of losing anything. Wow, that's very important. Uh, I have so much respect for you. I hope we get this podcast out far and wide. And I've done over 800 podcasts, and this is absolutely one of the best. So thank you so much for taking time to be with me today. We'll just Stephen, go ahead. I, I ask God's richest blessing on the book that you're endeavoring to complete. It's so timely. And I'm, I'm grateful that God's given gifts like he has to you and others that, that can put the spoken word to pen. Because uh, in this cancel culture, they're going to remove works of truth. Keep writing. And I'm, I'm so blessed by the work you do. And, and it, your labors are not in vain. On the other end of the, this telephone line is someone who's very, very thankful for you. No, so thank you. You're kind, and that was unexpected. And I wish I could talk a lot longer. Maybe we can do some podcasts in the future, but we're going to have to leave it there because of time. And uh, thank you again. We'll catch up another time. Okay, God bless you. Thank you for listening to The Strang Report with Steve Strang. To read more from Steve, visit his blog, The Strang Report, on charismamag.com. Again, it's The Strang Report on charismamag.com. This is Stephen Strang again. Even though I signed off on my Strang Report podcast, I want to add a couple of words. And you must be interested if you're still listening. One of the reasons I'm doing this podcast on its own name, in its own way, is to attract readers to my new book, which releases Tuesday, September 7th, the day after Labor Day. It's easy to remember. It's going to be available everywhere. Right now, it's only available on Amazon.com as a pre-order. And you can go to Amazon.com, either look for my name, Stephen Strang, or look for the name God and Cancel Culture. You can order it. They don't charge you, and they don't mail the book until the release date, September 7th. Would you share this podcast with friends? Would you tell friends that you think may be interested in the book? I would really appreciate it. I think you'll enjoy the book. I believe it's my best one yet, and also maybe one of the most important. The subtitle for the book, which we just decided a few days ago, is Stand Strong Before It's Too Late. 